You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. In every marriage, we're going to get to Ephesians 3 in a minute here, but in every marriage, there comes a point in the marriage where at least one of the, one of the partners is, is at the point where they say, hey, you know what? I know you love me. I don't doubt your love for me. But right now, the way things are going, I don't feel loved by you. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever been in that place? Um, The things that are going on in our marriage, I don't actually get the consoling. I don't get the comfort that delights me. I don't feel the love that I know we both share. So that's a very real reality in life. That can also come into play in our spiritual life with Jesus Christ, in our walk with Jesus Christ. So today, we're going to talk about how this happens. When you don't feel what you know to be true about God in your relationship with God and in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is going to be our final message in the Ren the Heavens series where we've been going through the lifeblood of this local church, who we are, why we do what we do. And uh, this is a sermon that I was planning on preaching a couple weeks ago, the week that I got sick, that Ben, the ben stepped in and... So here we are today. This is the sermon that God has for us today. As I, as I thought through and I prayed about it, I really felt this was the time to do this. And hopefully by now, you can identify the three points that we've been, that we've been working through this entire message in this entire series, I should say. Um, you know, how do we practically apply our mission as Doxa Church? Our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We want to show the truth of who God is. That's his glory, his, his, his love, his justice, his mercy. We want to do that by making disciples who make disciples, giving the gospel to those around us. That's, that's our job as a church. But how does that practically work itself out? Well, number one, you worship Christ. Number two, you walk in Christ. And number three, you work through Christ. So this whole series has been about that. We started with Worship Christ, spent a couple weeks on the walking in Christ part. Last week, we talked about working through Christ. And to close it all up, we're going back to the walk in Christ part one more time. Because if you remember way back when I had that sermon on Psalm 88, there's, there's really two big parts of walking in Christ that you can't miss either, either one of those parts. It's the darkness the dry times that we saw in Psalm 88. And there's what we're going to see Paul talk about here in Ephesians chapter 3. And this being overwhelmed with the love of God and knowing the peace and the presence of God. So as we talk about walking in Christ one more time, I, I want to just share, you know, one of the key words that keeps coming up this year has been the word balance. I've talked with a couple of people about that. Uh, there's a couple perspectives people have on their walk with Christ that if they're out of balance, they're going to cause some problems. 
One of those is some people think of their walk in Christ as a perpetual mountain climb. All right, it's just a perpetual mountain climb. I, 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 I come to Christ, I begin this journey of getting closer to God. And that's very true. All of that is true. But the doctrine actually works itself out. The, the, that what's behind this is the more I surrender, the more I pray, the better I serve others, the closer I will get to the top of that mountaintop. And then I will find God, I will be at peace, be this spiritually mature Christian who has all this love, and I'll, I'll arrive. You see, you see that? Have you seen that before? Like, there's, there's a definitely a perspective that people have on this. And I've met Christians like this, and what happens is there's this pressure to be spiritual and to do whatever I'm supposed to do, whatever the flavor of the day is, what I see people around me doing, what I've experienced. And it's all about getting to this high standing or maybe, like, emotional position Emotional state of just complete victory. And again, there are a lot, of, a lot of true elements to that. But it's not exactly right. Another way that Christians think through their walk with Christ is a crusade on a battlefield. We, we are in spiritual warfare, right? Are we not? Yeah. We are. So, so we have that down. And, and I'm not as concerned about getting to the mountaintop, so to speak, because I'm just so consumed with fighting these battles in front of me right now. Look how awful the world is. And it is horrible. Look, look at these other Christians who aren't doing the right thing over here. They're not taking a stand where they need to. They're going to get frustrated at that. So both the perpetual mountain climb idea and the crusade on the battlefield idea, obviously they have elements of truth. We do grow closer to God the more we see his love for us. We are in a spiritual warfare battle, but you cannot isolate either one of these mindsets and, and just go with one of, both of those, either, either or of those. Because neither one of those, out of balance, are what we've been seeing in John 10, which is a walk in the pasture. When you come to Christ and find freedom in Christ, and you're walking in a pasture with Christ, in that pasture... Think with me in this analogy that Jesus gave us. There are hills. There are some mountaintops, so to speak. There's also some valleys in that pasture. So there's the Psalm 88 side of it, the darkness, the dry spells. There's also the really high experiences of closeness with God and his overwhelming sense of joy. You have both and, both things. So we have to understand what Ephesians 3 is talking about, which is the other side of this coin. We had the message on the dark stuff, the heavy stuff. There's also this whole other side of your Christian life that you need to experience that Paul is praying that the Ephesians experience, that some of us have experienced before and we have never gotten back to. Some of us have just never tasted it at all. But it's a very important piece of our walk in Christ. And that is encountering life-changing experiences of profound love and joy. That's our sermon today, both and. We're going to look at that other side of the coin, encountering life-changing experiences of profound love and joy from Ephesians chapter 3. So if you'll turn there with me and follow along, uh, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 14 through 21. But to set this up, I do want to back up and just start at the beginning of the chapter. So I'm going to read 
Ephesians chapter 3. Please follow along with me, and then we will dive in to the content of this chapter. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To, to me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You catch that, Doxa Church? It's not just us sharing this mystery to those around us, but this is bigger than us. This is supernatural. This is eternal. This is the... the the rulers and authorities, we're talking like angels and demons stuff right here. This goes way beyond us. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what did we just read? There is a lot to unpack here in this chapter but I want to give you a summary of where we're at in Ephesians 3. I know we just read it, but I think it's necessary, a necessary refresher for all of us. In the first three chapters of this letter in Ephesians, it has been nothing up to this point but who you are in Christ. Here is your beloved identity. The church of Jesus Christ is this unique body of people who are coming together as one. And this prayer here that we just saw is a capstone of the first half of the entire letter. Because in chapter 4, Paul's going to turn a page and he's going to go into now, what do you do with your new beloved identity of who you are in Jesus Christ? He just spent three chapters outlining and, and outlining exactly who they are. You were, you were called out by God. You've been chosen by the Father. Okay? You've been redeemed by the Son, Jesus Christ. You've been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you were alive in Christ. You were made new through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you were to, to think through this in the sense of like, all right, I'm raising my family, we got our kids, it's not just, all right, kids, straighten up and do right, here's what you need to do to make the family proud. And then you just dump a whole bunch of stuff on your kids to do. That doesn't work, right? That's not what Paul did. For the first three chapters, he talked about who they were. Here's now your new identity in Jesus Christ. And then he gets into chapter four, and he says, now go do this, because this is who God has made you to be. There's a big but God has done all of this. God is great. We aren't great. But with God, now that he's made us new, we are great in Christ. Okay, so that's where we've been. He's reminding them of the grace and the loving kindness of God. Ch chose them, called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the who you are half. And the rest of this letter is now what you do with your beloved identity. And this creates confidence with humility. As you understand God loved me first, you're motivated by that love, you have confidence to do things you could have never done before in a way that isn't self-promoting. There's humility there because I know it's God who did this work in me. It's, it's the Holy Spirit's power that is enabling me and changing my heart, and, and he's filling me to do these things. That's what motivates us. So now, to zoom in on chapter 3, exactly where we're at today, Paul has just summed up one more time that the church of the Jew and the Gentile must now live in harmony with our high calling. This is way bigger than us. We're trying to display God's glory to principalities and authorities in heavenly places. The church is a mystery in the sense that no one saw this coming. We weren't expecting this. No one was. But it was God's plan. And we have an eternal purpose that is being realized through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what Paul is saying is, now that I'm in prison, don't lose heart. You still have this incredibly lofty goal that you can never accomplish if it wasn't for Jesus Christ and his power inside of you. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than all of us. This is Jesus. This is for Jesus Christ. This is God's kingdom we're talking about. And God is orchestrating something behind the scenes that he's going to use. There's a purpose behind this that we don't even understand. Do you see where we're at in Ephesians? So all of that leads up to this prayer for spiritual strength in verses 14 through 21. And what Paul is praying for the Ephesians is the same prayer that I have for y'all this morning. I want you to experience this encounter where you have a life-changing moment of knowing, wow, God loves me. I'm overwhelmed in my inner being with this sense of joy and peace that I am held by the hand of God. Maybe you've had that in the past. I, I have. I think through the different times in my life that it's happened, and a lot of times this happens right after the dark time. At the very, very bottom of it all, he comes in there with his presence. But I've, I've felt this at times when I was just seeking for answers and I was having unanswered prayer after unanswered prayer after unanswered prayer and just a rush of his presence overwhelmed me to tears. Sometimes it's happened when I've listened to music 
Christian music, singing about God and what he's done. Now, I, I think a lot of us might be still asking the question, okay, I understand what's going on here, but why is Paul praying this way for the Ephesian church after everything he's already said to the Ephesians, okay? Maybe you're thinking, like, why is Paul telling them that what they really need right now is for Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith, like we just read in verse 17? That's what Paul's saying they really need? Because... In Ephesians 2.22, for those of you who know this book and know the Bible, he just told them that Christ is already indwelling them, right? Are you with me on this? He's already made it clear. Christ is indwelling your heart. And now he's saying you need Christ to dwell in your heart. And in verse 18, Paul is praying for them to know the love of Christ. Well, I mean, we just preached through 1 John, and that's pretty obvious, right? Like, you're not a Christian if you don't know and have the love of Christ. All Christians know the love of God. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And from the very beginning of this letter in Ephesians 1, speaking of Christ, he said in verses 22 and 23, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So why is he praying fervently on his knees that Christ may dwell in their hearts and to know the love of Christ and to be filled with the fullness of God when they already have it? So here's the key. To make any of this under, to make sense, you have to see this part, all right? It's one thing to know the love of Christ, and it's another thing to experience it in your inner being. It has to be that way. Think of it this way. Let's say you just uh, saved all your money. You were really good. You lived on beans and rice for a couple weeks and you know, a couple months maybe, and you got an inheritance. You have all this money in the bank, right? And then some rainy day comes along where you know, it's Murphy's Law kicking in. You know, you're... The online, your online bank is, is on your phone, it's down, like the bank, and this has like happened to us recently. The bank, online banking is off. Um, the ATM machine, you, you don't, you're, maybe you're like me, I, I hate ATMs, I don't wanna char spend money to get my money, so I don't even mess with that. I won't memorize my ATM number, I won't, I won't mess with it. So your ATM number, ATM number is gone, and then you wanna just go into the bank and get this money, but it's one of those weird bank holidays that nobody knows about until, oh, it is that day, it's Columbus Day, okay. Whatever, they're off. Good for them. Let's just say all the stuff is going on. You have the money in the bank, right? It's yours. You own it. You know so. But for all these other crazy reasons, you have no access to it. And you're really hungry and you just want to buy a taco. And, and it's raining. And, and you can't get your money that you have to use. You know what I'm saying? It's yours, but you don't really feel like it's yours and you don't have access to it. Here's the thing. In your walk with Christ, what Paul is explaining here when you read between the lines is this is an element. You have the fullness of God. You have the love of Christ, but we don't always feel like we have it. There are times when we don't, and, and this is what, what we're going to see in this passage today is Paul is praying fervently 
for them to get what they already have. Sometimes we need to do that. On a practical level, there's a piece of our walk in Christ that goes beyond the normal everyday walk. There's something sometimes that we, that we need that we don't always feel. There's this extra gear that can be found, and we don't always fully experience what we own. This is true in real life, and this is true in our spiritual walk. And as a matter of fact, I dare say this is true more often than we, want, than we care to admit. If we're honest with ourselves, there are many days where we are not affected by what we know to be true. We're just carrying on, getting busy. Yeah, we know it's true, but it's not affecting us. One of my favorite theologians from yesteryear is David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor. Uh, he started out in Wales, and then he eventually pastored the church in, in Westminster, uh, London. Um, but I've read his biography a couple times, and, and there's, there's so much there. He, he would actually, when he struggled, uh, when he counseled struggling people, he actually had this technique that he used all the time. He would listen to the person's problem, and then he would ask them a question. He would just ask them, are you a Christian? <laughs> and usually the person's caught off guard by that. Like, of course I'm a Christian. I go to your church, and I'm dealing with these problems. And, and, and they're like, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying. Like some, some answer along those lines, right? He would get that very often. And this is what David Martin Lloyd-Jones would do. When people would usually say that to him, he would say, and this, this is not word for word, but this is the general flow of the way these counseling sessions went. He would say, is what you're showing me is that you really don't understand the first principle of being a Christian. This isn't something you have to try at, okay? When you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, he makes you new. He does all the work. He's changing you. He's living inside you. This is not on your own works anymore. You're not relying on yourself. You're not standing on your own performance. You're saved because of what Jesus has done for you. Can I get an amen? amen. So he would say that to them, and then the response is one of two things. This is his formula. Either the person would be like, oh, I've never heard, heard it that way. I thought I had to do this or that, right? And then that person is revealing they don't understand the gospel, and they are trying to live the religious life on their own, in their own strength, and they're going to fail, kind of what we talked about last week. So he gives them the gospel. But most of the time is what people would say is, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. I knew that. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just, I, I'm in this place right now. It's hard. And he's, like, I, and he's like, all right, I understand. There's grace for that. I just want to remind you of who you actually are because you don't have to achieve and strive and try really hard right now. And so what's happening here is you're not be, being affected by what you already know to be true. So we all have to personalize that and think through that. So, so just like God uses dark periods in your life to draw you closer to him. You can go through a period of dryness. Where is he? I don't understand what's going on. I can't get victory over this sin. God uses those times. Some people in this room are maybe still on that, in that place. God also uses this other flip side of the coin. It's, it's both hands. He's also going to use these times where he reveals himself 
in, in your inner being, and you're overwhelmed with this sense of joy and peace. It's an important part of your walk in Christ. Many times you think your problem is relationally, or it's my coworker, it's my boss, my marriage problems, it's, that's the problem, it's this marriage, or it's this financial situation. Paul is telling him right now in Ephesians 3, that's not your biggest need. This is the biggest need of your life, to fully experience what you already have. That's what I want you to know. This is encountering life-changing experiences of profound love of Christ in your inner being. You may be a Christian, yes, and though you know it, you don't always feel it to the point that it impacts you the way it should. So in this text, there are four pieces of finding the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We're not just talking about the head knowledge of what I know to be true anymore. There's actually four things in here that we can be doing to experience those profound moments of love in our inner being. And that's what I want us to see. We're finally to the, to the actual outline, and we're going to move through this pretty quickly. But I guess we're not quite to the outline because I want to clarify one more piece, all right? What is your inner being, all right? That's, that's a legitimate question that we do need to cover, to be clear. This is pretty easy. Your inner being is a synonym for your heart throughout the entire Bible. All right, we're talking about the seat of your mind, will, and emotions. It's the control center of your entire personality. And according to verse 16, what Paul is praying, that the Holy Spirit will strengthen your heart and your inner being to do what? What is he praying there in verse 16? Verse 17 gives us some more explanation of that verse. You see there's a comma there. So it's describing with more elaborate detail this strengthening of the inner being. So in verse 18, let's just look at that. Read it with me again. I'll read it out loud. Verse 16, comma, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. So you have, may have strength to do what? I just read it in verses 18 and 19. It's the strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the prayer. This is the prayer for, your, for the Holy Spirit to come into your heart in a powerful way so that you can grasp this. You will understand this concept of God's love, not just in a, in a mental way, but in an actual way. And you're like, well, don't all Christians know this? That's missing the point. We're talking about an encounter to this surreal personal level so that it becomes an in-your-face experience that you cannot shake of the love of God. His love, his approval is more real, more affecting, more sweet than even a parent's love for their child. It's just so amazingly overwhelming because his love is the greatest. Amen. His love is the strongest, more than any human love that we can muster or we can feel. He wants you to experience this in your heart. Now, this isn't a spiritual experience that we have to point out, just to clarify. It does come and it does go. It's not like you reach the mountaintop and you have it 100% of the time and then for the rest of your life, you're this super Christian who's overwhelming and bubbling with, with this, 
this sense of experience that no one else has. It's something that you can experience in different seasons of your life, right? Do you follow that? It's not a 24-7 kind of thing. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be praying for them to have it right now, something that they already have. And I think when you really look at church history and you read different people, this is something that is described everywhere. Uh, D.L. Moody, the American evangelist of the 19th century, talked about this in his journal. Contemporary of his, Charles Spurgeon of England, just across the pond, talked about the same thing. George Whitfield, to go a couple centuries before them, British Anglican priest, experienced the same thing. Even Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher of the 16th century. If you compare all of their notes, they all are describing the exact same thing, and it's exactly what Paul is talking about here. The overwhelming sense of love in your inner being. This has been throughout the history of the church, throughout the centuries. It doesn't matter what your church background is, your gender, it doesn't matter. Your, your economic class, this is for all Christians. So here are the four elements, the four practical ways you receive something like this. I want to go ahead and give you all four of them, and then we'll work through each one specifically. But you, but you have here in this context of Ephesians 3, you have prayerfully seeking it, prayerfully seeking, aggressive wrestling, collectively in community, and centered on Christ. And really, it's, it's two sets of two here, and they both go together, the prayerfully seeking and aggressively wrestling, the collectively in community and centered on Christ. So let's break this down. First one is prayerfully seeking, and this is the most obvious one in the text. Notice in verse, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Paul's not just giving us a list. This is not just something to achieve by clicking a couple boxes, okay? We're not talking about it. This is something spiritual on a deeper level. We can't just manufacture this thing. So there's an element of it where we have to pray and ask God for it to happen. It starts with a prayer request because it is a gift. And uh, another person who, if you read his writings, who talks about this is Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China. And after he died... He, they, someone found a bookmark in his Bible with what people knew, who knew Hudson Taylor said, this is something this guy prayed every single day. Every single day he prayed this prayer. Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. Made a nice little poem out of it. Some of you are like, well, that's kind of hokey, David. I, I don't really think I'm going to make a poem Fine, you do you. Like Hudson Taylor did his way, and it worked for him, all right? And you, you, it's all I'm saying is, here's the posture you need to have. This prayer, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. I love that. So maybe you can do better and not have a sappy poem. Fine. But here, there's a, there's a great lesson there in just praying that to God. Say, Jesus, I want this. I need this. Send this to me. Now, to go right along with that, not only is it just a prayer request, there's also an element here of aggressively wrestling with God for this. And this is something that is easily overlooked, and I don't always like getting into this, but 
it's not really super clear in, in the English translation, or I should say in most English translations. Look at verse 18. May have strength. I'm reading the ESV. Okay, most of you know that, but the English Standard Version. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Okay, so the word comprehend, we think of that as gaining knowledge. I can understand this on a, in a logical way, right? That's what we think of when we see comprehend. I don't want to come across like a, I don't know, like a critic here or anything, but like that's just the really, really not a great word to translate from what the Greek word is, okay? And this is actually kind of shocking to me because I, I, I read a lot of different translations this week because I know what that word is in the Greek. The word in the Greek, I'll, uh, I'll read it to you, is because I can never pronounce these, but it's katalambano. Okay, it's, it's the Greek word katalambano, which literally means to grasp. It's to overtake someone, to wrestle them to the ground and rob them. It's a really unique word, okay? That's the word. Like somebody's walking along, whoa, take you down. Whoa, I'm going to pull out. I'm going to grasp what you have. It's that intense of a word. It's, not, it's pretty rare in the Bible, but that's the word. It's not just comprehend. Oh, good, I, I, I understand the love of God now. Bless my soul. No, you're never going to fully, fully understand the love of God, right? Like, but this is saying, and, and this is where it really gets interesting, is I've read like pretty much every single English translation worth its salt. The only one that uses the word grasp is the New International Version. And some of you know, it's not really my favorite translation. I, I don't really use the New International Version a lot. But the New International Version of all the versions uses this word correctly, to grasp. I'm going to wrestle this out. And, and, and then if it's used corporately in a group setting, it literally means to sack and plunder a city. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. So there's an element of, yes, I pray and I ask God for this. And there's also this element of, God, I really want this. I need, I need this. Give this to me, Lord. Aggressively wrestling. So you can't just passively receive this. Many times you have to be hungry for it and get after it and wrestle this truth, about, wrestle this truth out. It's like you're dying, you're desperate, you're hungry, and you're cold, and along comes this stranger with all the money you need. Well, all right, let me go talk to this person and get something. That's who we are in a spiritual sense. That's what we're talking about. A little startling, I know. But... But the point here for you to take away is we should be wrestling with God. We should be meditating and praying until this truth just bursts open. So what Paul is talking about is not purely mysticism. It's not intellectualism. It's both the infusion of the mind and the heart to go get it. Prayfully seeking, aggressive wrestling, both and, not either or. Now the next two are the other set. It's another pair that must sync together with all of this that comes in behind all of this, collectively in community and centered on Christ. So where's the collectively in community piece, you ask? Again, verse 18. Well, this, first of all, this is written to the church. This is written to a collective body of believers, right? And he says there, with all the saints. 
If you're an isolated Lone Ranger Christian, you're not going to last long, right? You're going to get taken out, and you're never going to experience this. In the church, you can, you can get stuff out of the Word that you wouldn't just get by yourself. When you're, when you're in community with other Christians and you're listening to other voices and you're talking about Jesus with other people, they're going to share things. They're going to have insight that you didn't necessarily have. It's a beautiful thing that God's established. This is why we, the, we people write songs together. This is why we, as a, as, as a church, sing together. As, as in life groups, we're, we're using our gifts with each other. This is a piece of the local church that God often uses his church, to be the carrier of this. Lastly, it's centered on Christ. Not just to know the love of God, but verse 18 elaborates on this point. All the truths about the Bible became personal and real in the life of Jesus Christ. We see it all in Jesus Christ. So we have the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. How wide? Jesus' love is wide enough to embrace the entire world, John 3.16. In Revelation, we see people coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In, verse, in, in John 11, Jesus says that he came to draw men to himself. How long? 1 Corinthians 13.8. His love never ends. The love of Jesus in Revelation it, it, it started before the foundation of the world. It goes beyond the bounds of time. It was, it was on the cross, and it's still shining bright today. He stayed on the cross. That's how long. He stayed until he was dead, until he conquered sin and death. How high? I mean, Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And in John 17, he's, he's giving himself to save them. He's doing all, that, all of this to bring to a pinnacle Jesus Christ loves you in a way that we could never, ever, ever love anyone else. As much as you love, the, like your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, think of the person you love the most. That emanates from God, and it's literally a shadow of his love for us. Look at verse 21 again with me. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Verse 20 says, O oh, to him that is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is worked within us. This is, this, is, this is it, church. This is what we're talking about. When we're, when we're raising the bar of what it means to be a member of a church and you're calling, this is exactly where we're at here. This is it. Far more than you could ever imagine. Ask or think. He has got things in plan and in store for you that you're not even praying about right now. You can't even really fathom it. He's got that. According to the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in your inner being. 
When the Holy Spirit fills you, you are empowered. When Jesus enters, you feel loved. And then we are changed with the fullness of God, and the Father is glorified. There's our name again. Our name, doxa, is the Greek word in the New Testament for glory. That's what our church is here for. We're here for the glory of God. God's glory is everything that is true about his character, his love, his mercy, his patience. We are made in the image of God to shine and show his glory. When we do that, we show who he is, he is made known through us. Can you imagine that? Can you believe that? that? That's what he's called us to do. We do all of this according to the power that works inside of us, and it's the power of Jesus Christ, the gospel. It has to be centered on Christ. So there you go. There's your four four take-homes to prayfully seek, wrestle with this, stay in community, but center your life on Jesus Christ, and you will have these moments. Not just the dark moments like Psalm 88 talks about, but you will actually experience exactly what Paul prayed for, for the church in Ephesus. And that's my prayer for all of us as well. Let's close with Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. This is, this is like what we are called to do as a church. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. You are loved.